Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright, coming to you from sunny, snowy, rainy, sleety London, where the weather cannot make up its mind. Classic little April shower situation. Hi, Carrie. How are you doing? Hi, Octavia. I can't say I'm enjoying the weather, but this is the way it is this time of year, isn't it? And I'm pretty sunny myself because I'm enjoying post-COVID life. For the first time in two years, I'm not worried about getting COVID. And I didn't realize how freeing that would be. And maybe I'm totally misguided anyway, but it feels really good. It feels really, really good to not have that constantly as a narrative in my mind. So I'm really excited for you to have that. I am excited for it too, because I'm still feeling pretty knackered after it. And I basically caught it the minute you recovered. I I didn't catch it from you. (laughs) (laughs) Although we did see each other at that crossover point. I saw you the day before I came down with it for your birthday, which was lovely. But yeah, I mean, I'm not completely myself, but I think I'll be back to full throttle soon. And it's been exactly as you said, like the fatigue has hung around. It's honestly been like I've spent the whole process really thinking about everyone who lives with chronic fatigue and other long-term health conditions and just how much they have to withstand every day and how easy it is to not really realize that if you're not living with that kind of thing. But you know, the upside, I suppose, of the confinement was that once the brain fog lifted and I was able to do more than just stare into space dribbling, John and I watched some really great TV, like really, really great TV. So I'm excited to recommend that shortly. So, you know, swings and roundabouts. (laughs) (laughs) So before we get into it, let's get business out of the way. If you like, you can support us on Patreon by subscribing at patreon.com slash litfriction. You'll also get access to an extra mini-sode each month. There are now 13 waiting for you there and have the chance to suggest themes. Also, some exciting news about merch. We have done another run of our excellently sturdy LF tote bags. They have the best gussets in the biz and they are going to be available at a discounted price because life is only getting more expensive thanks to the Tories. We sell them on Etsy. We will be sharing the links soon on our socials and in the show notes. So get them while they're hot. We love, love, love seeing pictures of you out in the world with your totes. I've seen them in Sydney. I've seen them in Paris. I've seen them in Madrid. It's like the most glorious thing ever. And there will be a further special discount for patrons. So keep your eyes out for more information on that. We'll send you all a link via Patreon in the next week or so. And if you're not already a patron, then you can sign up at the link in the show notes for that discount and all the other things we mentioned already. And this month's Patreon mini-sode will be released in a week's time. The theme is Audiobooks Revisited, which is bursting with recommendations of things we've listened to and loved recently during our COVID haze and beyond. And lastly, patrons, thank you as ever for your wonderful support. You are the best. You are the reason that we can keep making the show. So thank you, thank you, thank you. We love you very much. But now back to mini-sode 29. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. The format for these minisodes between full shows is, for the next half hour-ish, we'll first have an informal conversation about the topic in hand and anything else that might come up, and then recommend some cultural things that we've enjoyed lately. The theme for this minisode was suggested by our patron Maria, and it is dedicated to something very close to our hearts. Bookshops. We love bookshops. It may not be a surprise to hear. And um, I think that a love for bookshops is adjacent to a love for libraries. And I think we will do another mini-sode on libraries because they deserve their own hall of fame. But this one is about those magical places you can go to get your hands on the books that you want, the books you don't yet know you want, the books that want you, maybe meet your future paramour, (laughs) 
everything <laughs> in between. So let's start at the beginning. Carrie Plitt, what is so great about bookshops? And what do you in particular look for in a bookshop? So I do love bookshops. My favorite element of bookshops, I think, is discovery. I love that you can walk in and something new can always catch your eye. I also just love engaging with physical books. So browsing in a bookshop, picking up the books, looking at their covers, touching their covers, seeing if it's like a matte finish or a gloss finish. <laughs> sound like such a perv. <laughs> I just want to stroke touching, them. <laughs> holding, opening. But you know, there is something so nice about that tactile engagement. You can feel how much they weigh, what the paper is like. Yeah. And it's such a pleasure. And I could just do it for hours, just looking at table displays and picking up books and putting them down. I admit that now that I work in publishing, there's an extra element to this, which is I'm always interested in what's on display at bookshops um, because I know the books that are coming out and I like to see what they're putting in front of readers. I also love, love, love seeing my own author's books in bookshops. And mm. that's I, that's kind of what I'm always looking for. And, you know, then taking pictures and sending them to them like a proud parent or whatever. But, um, <laughs> But yeah, that's um I I love being in bookshops. And in terms of me, the best bookshops, the things I look for is a personal feel. So I want a bookshop where the books feel like they're arranged and displayed with some sense of curation and taste by a person or the people working there. And mm. it's one of the reasons why I find the idea of those Amazon physical bookshops so distasteful because they they displayed books, as far as I understand, I've never been inside, partially by like the highest average ratings on Amazon. Oh my God. I didn't know about this. That is so depressing. Well, actually, um, they're shutting them down. <laughs> so I don't think it were it was not a it was not a fruitful experiment for them, which it make, fills my heart with joy. But um, <laughs> but yeah, terrible idea. And that's not what you want, right? You want some knowledgeable person to have really, really thought about which books they want you to pick up when you walk into the bookshop. And that is the best. Yeah, totally. Also, Bezos, you have monopolized the internet. Can you just leave the tangible world alone, please? Yes. You know, stay online, <laughs> upload your consciousness, whatever, send your penis rocket into the sky, but just like leave leave us our bookshops, you know? Yeah, please stay out. Oh, no, I'm with you. Nothing beats personal recommendations from booksellers who honestly, in my experience, are some of the most well-read and knowledgeable people you'll find and always so widely read as well. You know, that's what I love about talking to booksellers. They, they may have their own personal taste, but they tend to be people who are also just reading into all corners of literature because they're curious, you know, and they're curious and interested and they want to be able to recommend things to their customers. And I just, yeah, it's my favorite is talking to whoever's behind the till about what they've enjoyed lately or, you know, going in and being like, okay, I have to get a present for Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe is into uh, weeding and... Poor Uncle Joe. <laughs> into weeding. <laughs> I actually am into weeding. Listen, it's happening sidebar. to a lot of people as we slide towards our <laughs> mid-30s, man. It's it's not got me yet. <laughs> it's very meditative. You can listen to audiobooks. That's a little sneak peek for our um, Patreon. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess what I'm what I'm after is a bookseller who can be like, well, listen, we have this fabulous book that's actually a philosophical treatise on the power of weeding, in which case I would be interested. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it's wonderful when you go into a bookshop and you are just, as you say, presented with this display and you can be drawn into 
a book by its tactility or by, I mean, I'm really affected by books, covers in bookshops. I love beautiful covers and I'm drawn to covers that are more, you know, interesting. And I think that like independent publishing is really thriving at the moment in its cover art. I think it's like an amazing, amazing moment for books as objects being beautiful and thoughtful representations of what's inside the book. But also secondhand bookshops are some of my favorite places in the entire world. Like the kind that are crammed to the hilt with old books and you walk in and that smell of kind of dusty pages hits you and you just know you're going to spend an hour probably knocking things off the shelves by accident as you try and turn around the corner and whatever. But like (laughs) that feeling of discovering something that has been out of print for years or amazing old editions of things like those old Penguin editions and like new books are wonderful, of course, but I also love the fact that there are so many places where you can find amazing things to read for two pounds a go that have had a previous life in someone else's home. And sometimes they have amazing inscriptions, for example. Like if I give a book, I never give a book without writing an inscription in it. And one of my favorite things is when I find secondhand books and they've had proof of that life within them, you know, it's like a gorgeous thing because you feel like these are objects that eventually will biodegrade, but in a long, long time. But, you know, they have a thriving life as they get handed from person to person. And, and that's something I find very romantic and very beautiful. A funny thing that happens to me, though, whenever I go into bookshops is I basically almost every time immediately need to pee, partly because I'm excited and partly because I know I'm going to spend ages there. <laughs> yeah, but bookshops often do have bathrooms. That's another great thing about them. Yeah, well, that's it. So honestly, that's a thing that I look for in a bookshop. <laughs> Is a is a loo that I could use in my exciting need to wee. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Such a strange, yeah. and it's something that's happened to me since I was a child. As I used to just be so overexcited to be there. Fascinating. I know, weird. Sorry, everyone, if that's TMI. <laughs> what talking about childhood and bookshops? What is your earliest bookshop related memory? I don't have like a strong first memory in a bookshop. I mean, I went to the library all the time as a kid, and that those are mainly my book related child memories, Mm. but there was a children's bookshop in my hometown called Benbury Cross that I loved. And it was staffed by these lovely gentlewomen, both of whom used to be librarians actually. And in fact, I think I remember them from when they were librarians and then they became booksellers. So they kind of like had this role throughout my childhood, kind of pressing books onto me. And it was such a nice place. And, you know, they, they obviously got such, you know, speaking of booksellers again, they got such a thrill from helping children to find books that they loved. And um, my strongest bookshop-related memory, although not an earliest, is during my lonely summer in Paris, which I'm sure I've talked about on the show before (laughs) many times. It's very formative. Um, This was while I was in college. I didn't know anyone. I was really lonely. I didn't have any internet in my flat. Like I was so bored and sad. Mm. And I used to go to Shakespeare and Company, which is the famous English language bookshop in Paris. And I would pick up copies of books that I loved and kind of wander around the shop and hope that somebody would engage me in conversation about them. Oh, and baby. they literally never did. <laughs> they literally never did. So that failed. My version of that dream was wandering around art galleries in Paris, waiting for someone to engage me about the art. And actually that did happen, but it was always with a creepy older man, oh, always yeah. like 20 years older, like, Madame, what do you think of this, Mademoiselle? Blah. That is very heartbreaking, you and Shakespeare and Co. And also extremely adorable. Um, 
And it kind of reminds me that we do have this idea that the bookshop is like the meet cute location extraordinaire, right? Whether that's new friends or or lovers or whatever, it's kind of implanted in our mind like that. And I wonder how many people have, <laughs> have sparked up friendships in bookshops. I sparked up friendships, but with booksellers, but never with just random punters. I did actually once meet someone who met their partner in a bookshop. That's cute. That's Isn't very that wholesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also can't really pinpoint an earliest memory with bookshops and my childhood stuff was more libraries, apart from obviously just needing to pee every time I <laughs> arrived at a bookshop. Great memory. I do, <laughs> I do have a really, really strong recollection of a particular trip um, to a bookshop called Books Etc., which was in Whiteleys, which is this um, old shopping centre in West London that no longer exists, but it's near where I grew up. And I think Books Etc. was a, was a small chain. It definitely had the feel of a kind of Waterstones rather than a cosy independent bookshop. It was quite big and busy. And I was there with a family friend who was over from Australia. She's a bit older than me and and a bit more worldly. I think I was about 11 and she was 13. So she was very much into her puberty. And we went hunting for books (laughs) about sex. And basically, I think we just really wanted to see some penises. I think we were just like, we want to see cock. Where can we see cocks? And we found (laughs) this copy of The Joy of Sex, which if you don't know, was this sex manual produced in the 70s and it's illustrated but with drawings of a man and a woman who are both white and they both have long brown hair. The guy has a beard and they have fulsome pubic hair, of course, which is great. But I remember that amazing feeling so well of like you're looking at something that you know is kind of illicit. You're not really supposed to be there. That Of course, who the fuck is going to care? Two kids looking at the joy of sex in a bookshop. But I think we felt like we were looking at pornography, basically. And I remember also so powerfully just being struck by how incredibly hairy both of these people were <laughs> compared to me and my, you know, I was a little girl. So I just, the, all this hair on their bodies and on their heads and on his face. And like, I didn't have that many bearded adults in my life. So I was just like, whoa, <laughs> sex is hairy. Um, and then there was this one image that stuck in my mind and I've never looked at the joy of sex again since. So I, I want to track it down. Actually, there was an image that involved grapes. And I just remember these two like white hairy bodies and then this big pile of grapes in the photograph. I don't remember what they were doing with the grapes. I'm sure it must be a section about sensuality and food and sex. But anyway, we got about half of the way through looking and giggling. And then I think we just lost our nerve and put it back um, and ran out of the shop. But like, that is the thing about bookshops in reality. Like you can't do that browsing online. I actually checked when um, I was preparing this show and you can't have a preview of The Joy of Sex on (laughs) (laughs) Amazon.com. I was trying to find the great picture, but no, no, you have to go to a bookshop for that. So yeah, there you go. I had a similar thing where we used to read copies of Cosmo at the library. Ah, great. And those like, they'd be like, my first time I put shaving cream on his nipples and (laughs) then like rubbed it around and you know, it was like very elaborate things that were definitely not true, but it was so illicit and exciting to 11 year old me. Completely. It's this whole world, right? Yeah. So do you have right now a favorite bookshop? 
A lot of our listeners know that I live in Oxford, and my favorite bookshop here is definitely Blackwell's, which very sadly has recently been bought by Waterstones after being. I know it was it was a very long term family run business, and they just put it up for sale. And I guess it's better that it's been bought by Waterstones than you know another random company. But very sad. But anyway, this bookshop has been around for more than a hundred years. It's a very charismatic, pokey building in Oxford with these hidden depths. There's basically an entire underground vault of books called the Norrington Room, which you would not know was there unless you actually go downstairs and you're like in this giant basement of books. And there's some lovely quirks. Like they have a huge literature and translation section that's kind of, and I think it's maybe even fiction in translation that's not part of the other fiction section, which is really nice. So it's kind of thinking about translation as an art in a way that maybe other bookshops aren't. For some reason, their fiction is organized by books published before 1900 and after 1900. I mean, that's so Oxford. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we, so I know this because we had this amazing day where the agents from my agency all went to Blackwell's and we met a bunch of people and they gave us a tour and told us about what they did. And we kind of shadowed them in their jobs. And um, they were saying it's actually really complicated because if an author wrote books before and after 1900, they're like, where do we shop Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) But it's just like the way it's always been done. So yeah, I love, I always love going to Blackwell's. If I'm around there, I always just go pop in. Um, I love taking people there when they come to visit Oxford and it's a real institution. So I hope it will stay kind of the same, even when it becomes not independent. Yeah. You know what? I haven't been for years, so I need to come and visit you so that we can go because it's been a long time and I would love to come and see it before it changes if it's going to change, you know? Yeah, definitely. How about you? Well, I still, I mean, I'm pining for my old local, which is Burley Fisher in Haggerston, um, which opened when I was living around the corner in Dalston. And over the years, it's just gone from strength to strength. It is a gorgeous, gorgeous little shop, not even that little anymore. It's now got this huge basement of secondhand books, as well as the new stock they keep upstairs. But one of the things I love so much about them is that they they really saw that there was like a gap in the in the community for a place that would create a real community of writers and readers and local people. And so they have a really rich schedule of events. They've always, always got something going on, whether it's book launches or readings or whatever. And their booksellers are brilliant, a mixture of of kind of writers themselves and very, very avid readers. And they really support writers and they really support the writing community. And they also just have great taste. They buy very, very, very good books. Um, but yeah, they keep winning all sorts of prizes, bookseller of the year, bookshop of the year, that kind of thing. So don't just take my word for it. Go if you're in East London. And I also love Pages of Hackney, who were a bit further over into Clapton, who also had this incredible second shop for a while called Pages of Cheshire Street, which only sold books by women and non-binary people. And it was this glorious haven. There was so much there and it had a very, very special atmosphere. And sadly, they had to close their doors because the rent was so high eventually, which is why it's incredibly important to support your local indie bookshop at every chance you get, because they are battling market forces that are a struggle, basically. And books are not a lucrative business for anyone involved. But those those two are my favorites. And where I am right now, in Archway, there's not great local bookshops. There's a couple around, but then there's no, there's nowhere that has that identity that I'm really looking for, you know, um, which is a bit of a shame. Yeah. Something that feels like a community. Yeah, exactly. And I, I miss that and I would like more of it in my life again. 
What about bookshops in other places? Like, do you like discovering bookshops when you're away? Are there any that you want to shout out that aren't in the UK? Yeah, I mean, if I'm just walking around, I will often step into a bookshop when I'm on holiday, although I can't think of any specific examples. But in terms of like American bookshops, I've always loved Greenlight Books in Brooklyn. Mm, Yeah, that's great. They also have amazing events there. Yes. Yeah. There are a lot of great bookshops in, in New York that I love going to whenever I'm there. I was really excited to go to City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, which is just, I I love the idea of bookshops that also just have this rich history behind them and were kind of centers of movements. And of course, that's where a lot of the the beat poets coalesced in San Francisco. um, I was a little surprised by the location, which seems kind of like bland and weird and not what I expected, but the bookshop itself is great and it and you can see it's still very lovingly curated, even though it also has this historical relevance. I mentioned Shakespeare and Co. in Paris, another bookshop that has this like wonderful long history. So it's just great to be there for the history, but also, you know, you never know what books you're gonna find. That makes me think I want to spend more time actually seeking out bookshops when I'm abroad, you know, seeing what bookshops people love in the cities that I'm visiting and and making an effort to go to them. How about you? Yeah, it's one of my favorite things to do wherever I am, no matter where in the world I find myself. If there's a bookshop, I'll go to it um, and, and I'll try and like look into which ones are great before I go because they're just, I don't know, they're places that uh, are familiar, I guess, right? Like a bookshop always is a bookshop, even if it's a different kind of bookshop. But also I get so excited seeing walls of books in languages that I don't speak. Mm. It's really, really thrilling. Or if I do speak them, trying to figure out which ones I know, if I can read any of them. Like I often buy short, usually books in French or Spanish <laughs> when I'm away because I want to try and keep up my language. Oh, like it's quite a fun thing to try and find books that I understand or to find English books in translation into French or Spanish. That's always cool to have a look through them and see if I, like how I recognize the translation. Do you know what I mean? I find that very, very exciting. Just thrilling. I don't know, like weirdly thrilling. I think also because they're, they tend to be peaceful and contemplative. And if you're in a new city and it's maybe sometimes a bit overwhelming, it's really exciting, but it's like, I get very highly energized when I'm in a new place. And like sometimes I need to take a little time out. And I think some people will go into a church for that experience, you know, like a place where they can reflect and feel quiet and calm. And for me, that tends to be a bookshop. I mean, I, I really enjoy going to churches too and seeing what, what's on the walls, but um, bookshops are more more my space for contemplation, I think. But also peeing. And also peeing, hopefully. You know what? I'm probably usually too shy to try and pee in bookshops in foreign countries. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But bookshops I would like to mention in other places. I mean, the famous Strand bookstore in Manhattan is great and hectic and mad. Um, But what I love about it is they have this mixture of secondhand books and new books. And every time I'm there, they kind of seem to be jumbled up in a way that's really exciting. And also I found the booksellers there to be genuinely a super diverse bunch of people um, with really good taste and usually really interesting backstories and which inform their kind of choice of literature and stuff. I also, though, love, love East Village Books, which is much more low-key and only sells secondhand books and is down some stairs kind of in this amazing higgledy-piggledy basement and you can spend hours in there. And actually, that is a bookshop where people will talk to you (laughs) if you want to get talked to in a bookshop. (laughs) It's a nice one. 
When I was last in Paris, I went to a bookshop I'd never been to before called After Eight Books, which is fabulous, little independent. And they also have their own publishing arm. So they're putting out some interesting work and they have a lot of art books, art theory books, and then contemporary literature of all sorts. And it's great French language and English. And in Madrid, one of my favorites there was this bookshop called Ocho y Media, which specializes in cinema. And when I was at university, I wrote a lot about film. So they sell books about film and amazing like scripts and everything and also movies, but they also publish some of their own stuff. And I just, I think that's wonderful when bookshops branch out into publishing as well. And again, you really get that sense of a bookshop's identity and what the people who run it are interested in and what kind of literature they want to put in the world. I am going to Athens soon, hopefully when I'm in my period of post-COVID invincibility. And um, (laughs) I am so excited to check out some bookshops there. Um, And I'm hoping that Daphne, our editor, will help me out with some recommendations, seeing as that's where she lives. Also though, any listeners, if you know the bookshop scene in Athens and you have any recommendations, please, please, please hit me with some suggestions. So my next question for you, Carrie, is because we talked a lot about the joy of browsing in bookshops and I just wondered if you, can you think of a book that you found that way that's important to you? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't really. I well, I do love browsing in bookshops. I can't think of an example where I've just bought a book that I'd never heard of before in a bookshop. And I'm sure I have, but I think a lot of the time what ends up happening is I browse and I see a lot of books that I've like, I kind of know about, or have been on my mind. And then I end up buying something based upon both the fact that I saw them in the bookshop, but also that, you know, that I've been meaning to read it for a while or somebody else told me that I should read it, something like that, which maybe says something not so great about my um, ability to, to try new things and take a leap (laughs) into the unknown. Um, I don't know. How about you? I mean, it probably won't surprise you to learn that we're very different different in this respect. I love gonzo book buying. I'm just like, that looks cool. I'm going to buy it. Let's see what happens. I think that's so much better and cooler. I don't know if it's better. It's just very different. But the thing is, you know, you have worked in the industry for a long time. So your attention is very focused on the publishing cycle, right? The contemporary publishing cycle. And you're going to have all of those names of books floating around in your head. Um, whereas I'm a bit more separate from that. And also, I guess, more of a risk taker. I mean, it doesn't always pay off. I have definitely, definitely bought books and then got home and started them and been like, oh, that's not what I was expecting. <laughs> but yeah, I no, I love it. And especially, especially books that aren't contemporary. That's like, you know, I, I think, and that's where bookshops are brilliant because often the only books that are kind of floating around in your mind are things that you've read recent reviews of or things like that. And actually what I love about bookshops is that I'm much more likely to find something that I've never heard of before um, that was published 50 years ago or something like that. You know, for example, recently-ish when I was in Hay on Why, which is a very literary place full of bookshops, I was drawn to this book because of its cover, which is Coney Island of the Mind by Lawrence Ferlinghetti. It's poetry. And 
the cover is amazing, neon, just like this glorious looking object. And I got it home and I loved it. It was fabulous. And I read some of Ferlinghetti before, but I wasn't like, you know, not a poet whose work I knew inside out. So it was a great discovery. And last summer when I got back from Sicily and missed it, just didn't want to have left. <laughs> I went looking for books set there and I picked up this nonfiction book called Borges in Sicily, Journey with a Blind Guide by Alejandro Luque. And it's translated by um, Andrew Edwards. Um, I haven't started it yet, but it's sitting on my nightstand. And um, yeah, it was it was great to just like be in a bookshop and be like, hmm, I want to read something about Sicily. Let me ask someone and see what there is. You know, it was great. I love that when you're, you just don't have to start from a place of knowledge. You can start from a place of total ignorance and make discoveries. It's fun. Lovely. What about to end? Any great bookshop scenes in books and movies? Like, where do we get this idea that we're going to meet someone in a bookshop? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think we get it from movies because there are so many, like Notting Hill, you know, Hugh Grant has that travel bookshop in Notting Hill. Oh, yeah. You've got mail, of course. Well, that's the OG, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You've got mail where Tom Hanks is basically Jeff Bezos. (laughs) Yeah. It's such a time capsule, isn't it? Like, when, when we were worried about big box stores like Waterstones and Borders. And now everyone's like, please, please stores stay alive. Yeah. (laughs) Well, also the amazing thing about You've Got Mail is Meg Ryan's lifestyle just is not in line with someone who's on the salary of a small independent bookshop. (laughs) She lives in this like amazing apartment. It's very funny. I like it. Um, Even like before Sunset, which is the second book in that trilogy, and he's doing a reading in Shakespeare and Co. And she comes to the reading because they'd promised they were going to meet up and they, you know, they didn't. And and then she finds him in the bookshop and that's where it all starts. Um, So, so yeah, maybe I'd internalize that when I was spending my time. <laughs> I really, I didn't even want a boy. I had a boyfriend at the time. In fact, I just wanted a friend, but it's very telling that those are all romances, isn't it? Yeah. And it's also interesting because I was trying to think about books and I definitely found some examples online, but they're all books that I haven't read, like novels that feature bookshops. There's this book called The Little Paris Bookshop, which I think does kind of what it says on the tin, which is very popular. Shadow of the Wind, which I've never read. I don't know oh, if you is have. Oh, Carlos Ruiz Safon. Yeah. Think, yeah, I have read it. I don't remember Apparently it very well. Apparently that's about bookshops. It is about bookshops. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> the Bookshop by Penelope Lively. She wrote a book that has bookshop in the title. Um, <laughs> and then there's like Mr. Penumbria's 24-hour bookstore, again, which I haven't read. But there are books about bookshops. But I seem to not be interested in reading them. So I have nothing interesting to say about them. I mean, what, what, do you have anything interesting to say? Well, I just think it's curious that you have missed out a film that I happen to know is one of your favorites, which is Beauty and the Beast, Carrie. Oh, how could I forget? How could you? Um, but yeah, no, I think all of mine were movies too. The same ones that you recommended. But also, I'm going to add there's a bookshop in The Big Sleep that plays quite a pivotal role in the denouement of that story but my personal favorite is in the film Desperado where which is tour de force performance from Antonio Banderas as a (laughs) uh, murderous mariachi and Salma Hayek's character runs a bookshop called Café con Libros proving that you can be smoking hot a total badass and also really really into reading so Salma doing the good work there oh I've never even heard of that movie oh my god it's one of my favorite movies it's absolutely absurd it's amazing (laughs) it's Antonio Banderas with shoulder-length hair and a guitar case it's actually a machine gun 
and they're bad guys. And it's directed, it's Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez, really old. Wow. Uh, Salma Hayek's breakthrough role. And she's just, I mean, it's so it's astonishingly beautiful. It's cracking. It's very violent um, and very, very camp. And also the amazing thing about Banderas is if you know him mainly from Spanish films, where he plays complex, psychologically difficult, often queer characters. And then you see him in Hollywood where he's just like a hunk of like Latino masculinity. Yeah. And it's just, it's such a, it's such a kind of sad truth about what the West wants from people who are not English speaking. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And he didn't, he play Zorro? Yeah. He played Zorro's Desperado is kind of the prototype for Zorro. And then he plays fucking Puss in Boots. Like, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> there's a trajectory there, you know, but I, part of me is like, Antonio, get that cash money, do what you need to do. And then go back to Spain and make these incredible films with Almodovar. That's what I'm here for, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Desperado for some good bookshops. There's a shootout in the bookshop, I think. And it's, great. yeah, it's great. Amazing. We'll be back in a minute with our cultural recommendations. Hi everyone, we are back here with uh, me, Octavia and Carrie to give you some cultural recommendations of things that we have enjoyed lately that are not reading because sometimes we do do other things apart from read. So Carrie, what is your first? My first recommendation is a film called Flea. It's a Danish film directed by Jonas Poher Rasmussen, which was at the Oscars up for Best Foreign Film, Best Documentary and Best Animated Feature though sadly it did not win any of those, but it was definitely the reason why I ended up finding this film. And I would say that is one thing that the Oscars is very good for is it introduces new films to me. And I love kind of seeing what is on the list. Anyway, this film is wonderful. And I'd really, really recommend that you check it out. You can rent it on a bunch of platforms for 10 pounds or whatever, but it is so beautiful. It's so unique. It's a true story of a man named Amin, um, who's a friend of the director since school. He fled his home in Afghanistan with his family when he was a boy. And he's about to get married to his long-term partner. And he decides to tell his story in full for the first time to his friend, the director. And what is so unique about this is that the audio of the film is Amin's actual interviews and encounters with the director, but also scenes from his life that have obviously been filmed. But then all of this is animated and animated really, really beautifully. You know, we see him talking in the interviews, we see him going about his life, but we also see his basically his memories of what happened in Afghanistan and, and when they were forced to flee. And it's an incredibly moving story. I don't know how anyone could finish this movie and not think we should just be opening our borders to all refugees because it's just so inhuman what people are forced to do because it's not straightforward to leave a place where they're in deadly danger or even if they're not in deadly danger you know you just it just feels so silly that borders exist after watching this movie but also it's a really innovative and effective way to give narrative to lived experience on screen i'm um, you know because we we get his story he's telling his actual story 
And we get it in his words, but we also, you know, the animation means that it can be dramatized in a way that feels true, but also kind of clouded by memory and time and a mediation of a different form. And it just makes you think a lot about telling stories and what they mean and how we bring life to people's experience. And I really recommend it. I think it's great. I saw a trailer for it a couple of months ago and thought it looked extraordinary. So I'm, yeah, I cannot wait to see it. I was really pleased when you saw that you were recommending it. It looked incredible, incredible. And the the illustration is stunning, isn't it? The animation. Yeah. Beautiful. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. What's your first recommendation? Mine is a film I'm so excited about. It's called The Hand of God by Paolo Sorrentino. Have you seen it? I have. Yeah. Uh, I'm so interested to hear what you think. And I have some thoughts. Oh my God. I'll, okay, I'll great. <laughs> I mean, I would just live inside that movie. I absolutely loved it. But I, I'm a Sorrentino fan. He's from Naples. And this movie is basically a love letter to his city in a lot of ways and his life there, you know, his coming of age. And um, I, I'm also a huge lover of Naples. I think it's an incredible place. I've been a few times and this film just captures it so exquisitely and meaningfully very it's a very poignant movie i found it a very poignant movie i mean the cinematography is just heaven because it's sorrentino and he uses a camera like nobody else but also that i found the performances to be so raw and fabulous and it's kind of my favorite style of film like it's visually beautiful there's a, a real story that you can get your teeth into but it's also told in in a way that has moments that are just very surreal and dreamlike, which to me is very true to life because that's how I experience the world. So I, mm-hmm. I I find those kinds of films incredibly validating, I guess. But, you know, this is a movie that is saying really true things about the ups and downs of being alive, you know, like moments of joy, moments of loss, moments of pain. It's this coming of age story set in the 80s, which also, my God, seeing 1980s Naples is just like gorgeous. Everyone's got these amazing haircuts and like the colours are really vibrant Um, and it was inspired by Sorrentino's youth but the character this guy called Fabietto who's at this awkward teenage stage where he's kind of just on the cusp of everything but he's not quite there yet so he's got one foot in childhood and one foot in adulthood and he lives with his parents and his brother in Naples and in the first half of the movie you kind of just hang out with them as they live their lives and you meet the family and they're these amazing extended scenes of this incredible lunch outside, you know, al fresco lunch mm. with the whole family and they're all these extraordinary characters and the, just these glorious faces. Um, and there's all these tensions that he describes. There's a mad grandma in a fur coat eating a burrata like it's an apple, like it's just heaven. <laughs> um, and um, the mother is this wild practical joker and the father is this like kind of portrayed as this kind, benevolent patriarch, but he has a mistress. So there's this kind of c- complexity there. There's a very sexy but troubled aunt with Fabietto and his brother kind of lost over. And then tragedy hits the family and the rest of the film is about Fabietto kind of figuring out the next phase of his life and what he wants from his adulthood. And essentially him kind of discovering that he's an artist and he needs to find the path to uh, that kind of self-actualization, I guess. And I honestly, I finished it and was like, I cannot wait to watch that movie again. I want, I just want it. I want to be in it. But how did you, what did you think of it? Yeah. So I'm a Sorrentino fan as well. And I think The Great Beauty is, is honestly one of my favorite films ever. And I was so excited to watch this and I did love it. Did you not find it a little bit male gazy? Like it's very much, I guess maybe you can forgive that because it's through the eyes of a teenage boy but yeah there's something a bit unsettling about it for me that kept taking me out of the story I don't know interesting 
honestly, I didn't find that because I was just like, we're in the perspective of 1980s Italy, which was a very male gazy kind of place. And this is a kid whose like sexual journey is is just beginning. I think the reason it didn't trouble me is I didn't find it uncritical of that, you know? And just the reality of that place at that time. Like I think when you think about the Ferrante novels as well, you know, like Naples is a gritty place where people live and lived in a lot of poverty and levels of education differed. And there there is a crudeness to it that I think when people tell stories about Naples and they tell them honestly, like is a big part of it. So I saw a lot of that stuff as just being like, this is what it was like, you know? Yeah. And because it was based on his own experience, I didn't see it as, oh, this director is fat phobic and ableist and he's showing us this about himself through his work. Yeah, maybe I felt it wasn't troubled enough. Mm, interesting. I was surprised that I had that reaction, actually, because I don't feel that way about his other films necessarily. But I I agree with you. The cinematography is just stunning and the characters and, you know, it's incredibly moving as well. It's so very, moving. Very film. Yeah. Um, and the fact that it's based on his own experience is just heartbreaking, really. Yeah. What's next for you? So my next recommendation is the band The Weather Station, who I saw in person at an actual gig (gasps) with Eddie last week. Um, And it was so fun and exciting. And um, it was my first live music in two years. And it was great. Wow. And I also, I just have to say this, speaking of our tote bags, Eddie had a literary friction tote. And I got recognized by one of our listeners who was very nice and also very understanding when I basically turned it into a really awkward interaction because I thought she was wearing a mask and I thought she was a friend of mine who was like, Carrie. (laughs) And I was like, Laura, I thought that was you. Oh my goodness. Great to see you. And she's like, oh, you don't know me. Um, (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) It's so awkward. But anyway, was it dark in there? Uh, it wasn't that dark. It was just my, I'm I'm not quite ready to be in the world yet, I think. Yeah. But, <laughs> but anyway, it was so nice. And it made me feel that um, I had some connections with our listeners besides books. So that was great. But anyway, The Weather Station, it's a kind of contemporary folky band with some jazzy elements from Canada, which is fronted by someone called Tamara Lindemann. And she has this beautiful and soothing and kind of haunting voice. They have a lot of different songs in their repertoire, some, you know, fast kind of maximalist ones, some very simple ones. And I just loved hearing her sing on top of it, no matter what the style. But also a lot of their songs are really catchy and upbeat while still being about very serious themes. And I especially like their album Innocence, which is about Lindemann kind of moving out of the twilight knowing phase of climate change, which is not a phrase that she uses, but is definitely the journey of that album. And you could see that as incredibly earnest and she definitely is very earnest and she was very earnest in in person on stage, but the music is so catchy and great and thoughtful that it doesn't feel too earnest or hitting you over the head with its message. And if you are, you know, looking to get into them, the song Robber is really great from that album. So yeah, um, The Weather Station. That sounds really nice. I am actually very excited to be going to a gig, not till May. <laughs> <laughs> the Sunra Orchestra is coming to town and I Wonderful. I'm very, very, very much looking forward to it. My next one is TV and it 
is a show called Standing Up on Netflix, which was recommended to me by the author Niven Govindan, who we spoke to on the show a little while ago, who has great taste in all things. So I knew it was going to be good. And it was so good. So it's the latest from Fanny Herrero, who was the showrunner on Call My Agent. And it feels to me a bit like a sibling of Call My Agent that's decided to show the other side of Paris. So Call My Agent was, you know, the glitzy, mostly white Paris of the rich and famous. And this show, which is called Troll in French, which means funny, but it's also the name of the comedy club, which kind of brings all the characters together, is about the stand-up scene in Paris, which is completely different and very different to here as well. I'm not, I'm not a huge consumer of stand-up comedy, but, you know, in the UK, when you think about the big famous stand-up comedians, they tend to be white and they are often male. Um, and in Paris, because it's quite a new kind of art form and medium. And also because humor in France is often very bound up with political commentary just at, at the, from the get-go. It's a way, way more diverse scene. You know, largely people of color, second generation immigrants. And this show is just about this group of friends who are hustling to get by in a city that is either indifferent or hostile to them or fetishizes them as exotic. And they're brought together by this comedy club. There's this guy called Bling who runs it, who's Vietnamese French and who was a big deal and now is kind of a bit washed up and like makes crude jokes that are sexist and he needs to kind of pick himself up again. And then there's his friend Nazir, who is Algerian French, who lives in the banlieue with his disabled dad and works as a delivery driver, essentially like on a bike and does stand up in the evenings, who's just this gorgeous character, so kind and funny and like lovely, just a lo- like a lovely man who you really enjoy spending time with. And then there's Asiatu, who's like the hot young thing on the scene. And her joke about fingering her boyfriend up the butt goes viral and causes all kinds of problems in her personal life. And then there's this the, the kind of token posh girl, Apolline, who comes into their life and just shows what happens when the world of like elite white Paris brushes up against this totally different scene. And it's it's so funny, but also just really heartwarming, great commentary about class and culture and gatekeeping and everything like that. But I think most of all, it's just the story about a group of friends who like, fuck up, forgive each other, fuck up, forgive each other, mm-hmm. succeed and fail and like build strength together. And it, I just loved it. I really, I consumed it in a couple of days <laughs> when I wasn't very well. And I just really reveled in seeing a side of Paris that, you know, I think people are showing more and more, but like it's certainly not the traditional Paris that gets parceled up and and shipped out to non-French speakers, you know? Wonderful. Yeah, I think you'd really enjoy it. I've been thinking a lot lately, this is a tangent and I won't go on for too long, about how TV can actually be a really good place to model how people fuck up and then forgive each other. Yeah. And often, like, I really like shows that do that, that like show everyone in their imperfections just trying to trying to get along and and constantly messing up and still, you know, managing to to stay friends and be with their families. Yeah. I mean, friendship is one long act of forgiveness, I think, yeah. as life goes on, <laughs> as life as life is long, you know, you, you, yeah. the friendships that last are the ones where you forgive each other constantly, in my yeah. experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, on that lovely note, that is all the time we have for today. Carrie, I forgive you. <laughs> I forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you for everything as ever and thank you to Daphne Carnesis for editing 
Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps us reach new listeners. We will be back in a couple of weeks with a full show. And until then, I'm Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt. And this is... Literary, literary friction. friction. <laughs> I've never done that before. I don't know why I did that. I loved it. It was on the theme of friendship and forgiveness. Yeah. <laughs> Will you forgive me for speaking alongside you? Forever. Forever. <laughs> <laughs>